President Trump has nominated Amy Coney Barrett to fill the vacancy on the Supreme Court created by the recent death of Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. The Constitution stipulates that the Senate must next decide whether it wants to confirm Barrett, a conservative jurist who currently sits on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Seventh Circuit. Democrats are concerned that Republicans will shift the court's ideological center of gravity rightward for a generation or more if they replace Ginsburg with Barrett, and they have vowed to do everything they can to prevent Republicans from succeeding in their effort. With only three weeks to go until voters head to the polls to choose America's next president, Democrats claim there is not enough time for senators to assess Barrett's record and evaluate her qualifications adequately for a seat on the highest court in the land. They also point out that Republicans' decision to confirm Barrett before voters head to the polls contradicts their 2016 decision not to consider Merrick Garland's Supreme Court nomination until after the people spoke in that year's presidential election. How should a democracy like the United States select its judges? Why do we need judges in the first place? How do we ensure that the president and Senate appoint good judges? Is there a single best way? Or does the ideal process change over time? And how can we address the dismal state of the current process? Welcome to Politics in Question, a podcast about how our institutions are failing and ideas for fixing them. I'm James Walner, a senior fellow at the R Street Institute. I'm Julia Azari. I'm an associate professor of political science at Marquette University. I'm Lee Drutman, a senior fellow at New America. Well, hello, guys. Um, it seems like everybody's talking about the Supreme Court these days, and the Senate Judiciary Committee is, is poised. It's set to begin uh, Barrett's confirmation hearings on, next week under extraordinary circumstances where you have remote virtual questioning. You're going to have numerous members on the committee who have, uh, who have COVID and who have tested positive for COVID. This is an extraordinary time in so many different ways. And it seems like 2020 just keeps on going. We're recording this episode on uh, no, October 9th, uh, 2020. And I guess what I want to talk about today is while the Constitution empowers the Senate to determine how it considers Supreme Court nominees, there is a difference between can and should. And so what I would like to do is to take a step back and let's think about this a little bit more broadly and, and ask, should the Senate confirm Barrett in such circumstances? And, or is there a better way? And to help us answer these questions and, and work through this, uh, we have a, a special guest. Judith Resnick is the Arthur Lyman Professor of Law at Yale Law School and the founding director of the Arthur's Lyman Center for Public Interest Law. She teaches at Yale. She teaches courses on federalism, procedure, courts, prisons, equality, and citizenship. And her scholarship focuses on the relationship of democratic values to governmental services, such as courts, prisons, and post offices, the roles of collective redress, class actions, and arbitration, and a whole lot of other stuff. She's the author of an excellent article on judicial selection and democratic theory that will be listed in the show notes. And I can't think of anyone better to have on to help us get our thinking straight on this topic. And I, I want to also add, in full disclosure, she is a member of a task force on the judicial nomination and confirmation process. It's the Constitution Project that the Project on Government and Oversight is put on. And I am a, a co-member of that with Judith. That's how I met her. And, and listening to her insights on this issue, she's really helped me clarify my own thinking about judicial selection and how that impacts the, how we think about the courts more broadly. So Judith, welcome. Welcome to Politics in Question. Thank you. Uh, glad to participate and eager to hear what others have to say. Uh, you asked me to begin for a moment. And um, sometimes in US political discourse, the idea is, oh, isn't it terrible? States, some states have judges who are elected and isn't popular election awful? We only need appointment. Well, if ever there was an object lesson in the vivid politics of the appointment process. We see it now. So the idea that there's any place in which the selection of judges is, quote, politically free, in different senses, of course, you all political scientists, in different senses of the word political, is, of course, has no plausibility. Politics is, as you all know, everywhere. The question is what kind of politics and how to do it. And as we were discussing a little bit in advance, one question is, judging predates democracy. So then the question is, A, do you need judges? And B, how do you pick them? 
And the answer is, of course, you need judges because dispute resolution predates democracy. But on top of that, there are issues of legal interpretation and application. Members of Congress can set out rules. The Constitution has words. How do they apply real time and for real people? You need translation, you need application, you need judges. So then the question is, how do you get judges? And the answer, if you look as a positive matter empirically, is look around and you'll see that there are a lot of different ways that democracies pick judges. Some have merit selection committees. Some have multiple authority where three members of the legislature and three members of the executive branch and three members of the public or something pull together a slate of people. And some do voting. And just the history that you all probably know this as may your listeners, but the history of having direct election in the 19th century, which is when the movement came to be in about the second half, and there's an interesting book by Jed Sugarman, who's also a law professor now. And basically, legislators had too much patronage. And so legislators picked, and the view was it was uh, sometimes scandalous, but otherwise just too much inside what we would now call the beltway. The punchline was get direct democracy to do elections. Now, elections are fraught if a judge is being reelected. But if you were to have an elective system where someone ran once for 15 years and you didn't have pay and you had control over who could pay for money to run elections and you thought about what people could say when running for election to be a judge, then you would have a system that is plausible. Right now, of course, if you want to run repeatedly, you worry about how that affects impartiality. So the, the, the quick answer is there's no one way for democracies to pick judges. And you could elect them, you can select them. Either way you do it, you've got some political engagement. And politics, as you all I assume know, is good, not bad, in the fact that you want commitment to the people who you select for appointment. And so having ex-ante politics isn't the problem. It's ex-post politics that are the problem. Here, of course, the problem is that the selection is being jammed down. People are already voting. And there's never been a moment in US history where as people are voting for the president, a new judge is getting a life appointment, which brings me to my last introductory point. The stakes of judgeships varies with their portfolio, their jurisdiction, and their tenure. If you have tenure too short, you worry completely. So there's actually a case from Europe where if someone is given a position for two years, you can't be impartial because you're always on a round robin for getting reappointed. But on the other hand, if you're looking at something for life, the data I did in the article you mentioned, the average term of service now, or as of a decade ago or so, was more than 24 years. Democracy usually worries about people holding power for too long and ought to worry for judges for too short. So that's another piece of this. Life tenure in the federal system is a, um, an obligation, but the Constitution says the words good behavior. So there's actually an plausible interpretation that you could have mandatory retirement under the US Constitution with an age peg because there are systems such as Massachusetts where their constitu its constitution has the comparable same good behavior provision. And there is mandated age retirement, which is not seen in conflict with the good behavior requirement. There's so much to unpack here in, in your introductory comments. And I think in working through these this question about how a democracy uh, to select its judges, and this is this article on judicial selection and democratic theory that that you uh, you wrote that will be in the show notes, and I encourage listeners to to take a look at it. There's kind of you know four general areas, three or four general areas that I want us to kind of like work through. And the first is you know what is the role of the judiciary, or why do we need good judges? And I think once we have that firmly in mind, we can then ask you know. How do we then get those? What's the best way? You know, how do we get good judges given that role? And then also kind of related to that, how does the judiciary relate to the broader separation of power system that we have? And how does that impact the way in which we get uh, good judges? And then, you know, how do other nations go about doing it? How do other states go about, you know, go about doing it? And what lessons can we learn? And then lastly, 
is what are the consequences? We, we can put on our speculation hats a little bit at this point and say, if we were to go down this road, what would the consequences be of reforming our federal judicial system, either with constitutional amendments or with legislation to do this type of thing? And so what, with that in mind, let's just jump right in. And Julia, you know, I'm gonna, why don't you start, start us off here? Yeah, great. So I have a question that probably is a little bit basic in terms of constitutional interpretation, but it, it kind of it comes up a lot in the classes that I teach about the presidency. And increasingly in my elections classes, we talk a lot about constitutional meaning and constitutional law. And I've been talking about uh, Citizens United with my undergrads this week. And I, I wonder about these kind of two frameworks that I find myself implicitly slipping into when we talk about judicial review in these contexts. So this is a little a little afield of the question of how do we get good judges, but just kind of what what is the, the purpose of judicial review and what are these judges doing? And one way is to think about it in terms of the Constitution as a kind of limiting limiting factor that puts the, you know, that kind of puts a stop on the political branches. So I kind of think about this as like the protection of politically unpopular minorities or, you know, what happens if a legislative decision establishes a religion. And so we have kind of an agreed on First Amendment, for example, in that context that would make that unconstitutional. But the other role, I think the role that's more interesting and that I've been thinking a lot about as I've contemplated Justice Ginsburg's legacy and, and your work, Professor Resnick, is um, the, the question of creating constitutional meaning and how that, you know, I personally see constitutional meaning as, as something that's evolving. I know not everybody agrees with that, with that interpretation. And so I guess we can sort of shoe the, shoehorn this into the question of good judges in terms of, you know, what do we what do we look for in terms of how judges think about the meaning of the Constitution and the law and its relationship to politics? Let me add, throw on the screen in response that, of course, right now, our eyes are fixed on the U.S. Supreme Court. But I just pulled out my little pocket Constitution that I carry with me. And Article 3, of course, creates judges of the Supreme Court and of the lower courts. And just a few fast facts is that there are roughly 850 life tenure judges who have active status and another who have taken senior status would put that group as somewhere up above a thousand, which is to say that in addition to the 900, um, the nine US Supreme Court justices below them sit uh, 180 or so court of appeals judges and other levels of the district court judges. There was an era in the beginning of the 20th century, there was one district judge in Massachusetts and one in Indiana, but we now have dozens across the United States. And every year about 360,000 cases are in the federal court system of which about 250,000 or so are civil cases. So I just wanna be clear that we're talking about people and indeed our nominee is coming from the Court of Appeals that the judges have a big swath of activity that is not constitutionally drenched, which is to say that, that federal statutes rush, uh, govern a vast amount of our activity, plus there are controversies, uh, what's called diversity jurisdiction between citizens of different states, which can involve contract or tort. There's a whole host of activities, not all of which are constitutional. So when you say, why do you want judges? It's because you have a conflict. It could be about the meaning of Title VII. It could be, which is about non-discrimination on the basis of race, sex, and uh, orientations and a variety of things under a federal statute. It could also be about the meaning of the Securities and Exchange Act, and it could be about environment, and it could be about the First Amendment or the Equal Protection Clause. And of course, you're completely right that none of this meaning, however much we think we carefully pick our words, are is absolutely fixed, meaning is contextual. And so you need judges to figure out, given X facts and Y statements of law, how it applies in this instance. And as we see in the ongoing debates of Roe v. Wade, just because the Supreme Court says something is not a conversation stopper, but is often indeed a conversation enabler when political forces want to grab the issue and try to push it. They're always the reminder is the Nixon um, platform had pro had abortion as a possibility. So the idea that abortion is a fixture of republic anti-choice is a fixture of republicanism is something that needs to be dislodged the same way that the words equal protection of law have come to mean. Uh, thank you, Justice Ginsburg and many others. Something that 
at the framing of the 14th Amendment, it did not include women. So if you're looking at people who are wanting to say, what did they mean then? You've got two problems, which gets me to your judicial review. Problem one is who's the they, the people who wrote it? Did they have a joint view? And we're saying using the same word right here, do we have a joint view of what that word means? The people who ratified it? Okay, tell me social scientists how you're gonna quantify their meaning. And if your answer is let me read their dictionaries, I think we got a glitch. And then the question is, did they mean for us to have their meaning fixed if we could figure out whether they had a shared intent and they meant X, Y, or Z. So most democracies of which I'm aware have what they sometimes refer to as a living constitution, evolving constitution. The US had it for a while too, where the people who read it are very clear that what those words meant, if you could ascertain it at their first writing, does not bind forever what it is they need to be understood to me now. And one just last example, of course, when all the Fourth Amendment law that says, that, that talks about whether our cell phones are seizable, understands that the conception has to be applied to new facts. I like the, the conception. I like that. It has to be applied to new facts. I need to think about that. Uh, Lee. So I, I want to jump in on this question of what are good judges, because I, I think there's sort of this fiction that we we perpetuate that we have these judges who are these completely neutral observers. They're just going to interpret, uh, you know, laws by like an umpire would call balls and strikes with like this clearly demarcated strike zone and that, that they don't have opinions. They don't prejudge anything. And, you know, I mean, maybe there was some modest approximation of that in a much earlier time, but it's clear that that's a total fiction. So, Judith, you, you kind of, I, I think, bring that to the surface and say, look, judging is a political act and there's politics in everything. Of course there is. So my question is, what would the process of what should the process of judicial selection look like if we said, OK, like there's there's not a, a clear strike. So there's there's a conservative view of the law. There's a liberal view of the law. There's maybe a bunch of other views of the law. and if the role of a judiciary is to kind of be this neutral arbiter, and yet, like, if, if, there, if we say there's no it, politics in everything, so there's no truly neutral arbiter then, because everybody has an opinion, as they should if they're an informed person who's studied the law and, and is engaged in politics. I, I feel like the, the challenge is we don't really have a way to think about that because we have this fiction of neutral arbiters at the same time as we have a reality of clearly defined conservative and liberal and whatever legal philosophies and societies. So like, I, I'm trying to understand how, to, how we should think about it, given that uh, contradiction. Well, so um, a great uh, set of problems, I guess, to, to slow down is one quick answer. The word politics, of course, also needs to be excavated a bit. When we say it's political in the sense that political parties constitute governments, and when they constitute governments, they need a mechanism to select judges. And that mechanism could be go back and do direct voting. Not every actor in a democracy needs to be elected by direct voting. And of course, we have all the problems with direct voting, but getting people and having the votes. But so politics in the sense of constituting and selecting now you're a judge, and then I think it's helpful to talk about it as a problem of judgment, which is to say, first of all, figuring out what happened turns out often to be hard because people have different descriptions of what happened. And second of all, thinking about how to therefore say, does that violate the Equal Protection Clause or does that violate a protection against non-discrimination in education or does that violate an obligation not to hurt somebody directly through a physical assault? There you want to say, it doesn't matter, you hope to say, and of course the judges and the courts keep telling us, I'm not a Republican or democratically appointed, I'm a person trying to winnow out facts and law, and we should remind people that there's a really weird sort of etiquette inside courtrooms that if followed, people, and taken seriously, have these, try to provide guardrails, i.e. information comes in in a disciplined way. The etiquette, one of the reasons I want to keep people reminded about the lower courts and the Supreme Court is that it's a form of democratic small d politics and 
commitments and social practices. Unlike the screaming that can happen in the Senate, or unlike the screaming that can happen in debates, there's actually a really important etiquette of people listening to each other on the record where your words are recorded and can be used back and forth. And moreover, and importantly for people to realize, many of us on this call weren't juridical people. We didn't have the capacity to sue and bring lawsuits or be called as witnesses without somebody else corroborating our testimony. So the idea that a prisoner and a prison staff person are equals in this setting is so not trivial, is so important to a new understanding of power and authority and what judging when done right, if it lives up to its aspirations and adjudication can do, is it redistributes the political power that individuals come in with. And of course, if there are subsidies available so that people can participate equal with each other, then you have the possibility of excavating information and asking people, call judges who are bound by that record to explain why they get to reason X or reason Y and make the conclusion, those can be all limiting along with the weight of quote precedent, what have people decided about this kind of issue before? And so then of course, yes, there's areas of interpretation, but you've got a, a lot of guardrails that you don't wanna ignore that makes judging a discrete etiquette, a discrete practice and ideally a discrete social set of obligations. And there's where you say, I'm trying really hard not to come with my political affiliations or my religious affiliations and come instead to say, what do I understand the merits of this? Then we're gonna get back to the point, but there's so many meanings of these things. But I just think we need to start from saying it's not the same as being on the floor of the House or the Senate. Yeah, I get that. But like in, in practice, it's, I'm not a, as close of a of a you know reader of the Supreme Court processes as probably you are, but you know I mean it seems to me that there's a, a predictable way in which the judges wind up ruling based on their who who appointed them and whether they are it seems pretty clear that there are liberal judges who are appointed by Democrats and conservative judges who are appointed by Republicans. So, I mean, I, I sort of get that in in theory, things should absolutely work the way that you describe. But in practice, it seems that they're not. And it seems like given the, the sort of evolution of conservative and liberal legal societies and a sense that Democrats want to appoint solid liberals and Republicans want to appoint solid conservatives, that we, we are quite far from that idealized version of judging. And yet we maintain this fiction, it seems to me, that judges are really considering all the facts in a kind of open-minded way without bringing clear legal philosophies uh, that will land them on a consistently conservative or liberal side. And I, I just don't know how to think about that in our current politics. You know, should we just say, like, how, how would we get judges who actually do that? Or should we just give up that fiction and think about some other way to have a judiciary that can act in a, a legitimate, neutral way? Well, for, that's a great point, And it'll get you back to selection, of course, as well. So, of course, it's completely tragic that the current effort is to put someone on the court because they believe they know how she will vote in particular ways on particular cases as they are currently constituted. And the, the question about how to fix that, which is I think part of our topic, is first an immediate example of a structure. So the US Supreme Court sits as a group of nine all the time, and they always do it like that. There are constitutional courts, the Supreme Court of the UK, for example, that sits in subsets, three, five, 11, it doesn't have to be the same group. Imagine if we had a subset of people rotating through, which by the way, there are proposals for, that would alter the sense of the fixedness of the outcome, because even if you have the people pre-selected for points of views, if you have enough of them, which goes of course to size, if you have enough of them, you don't necessarily have a foregone conclusion. And if you believe that there isn't supposed to be a foregone conclusion, now step back for a minute. Of course, I believe there's supposed to be a foregone conclusion that all people are created equal and all people means women and men of all colors and orientations. So the one is in these fights over judicial nominations, you know that you're fighting about what you believe the basic underlying principles of constitutional ordering in this democracy entail. 
So right now, if the nominee said she did not believe that women were equal to men, one would hope that senators of whatever party would say that's unacceptable, the same way that if she said that someone by race was not equal, you would say that's completely unacceptable. No one can sit as a judge in that with that posture. So those are some of the ways in which the nominee debates inform us on our bedrock values or concerns. That doesn't solve your problem about how do we get judges. And there are systems that's, that are feel less political because they do have an understanding that, that they're supposed to not have this prefixed point of view and they're not selected for their prefixed point of view. James and I were talking before that to think about this as a problem that's a judge problem is to miss that it's an executive branch problem and a Senate problem and not just a judge problem. And what we need to be doing is telling the senators, you should be rejecting the idea that you're trying to pack a court right this minute under these circumstances. That's a fabulous point. And you mentioned earlier, I, I, I want to seize on something that you said in your introductory comments, Judith, that I think was very interesting and that judging predates politics or democratic politics. And what I want to kind of emphasize here is the fact that judging is, it's all a political activity in the sense of a small p, but it is a different activity. It is a different activity than something that say what happens inside Congress. And so it could predate it, but it's just different. And in asking what the role of the judiciary is, how do we get good judges? Why do we need them? I think it's, we have to look at the funk, we have to put our Montesquieu hat on and look at the kind of the think about judging in terms of functions, judging among equals, but the venue matters. And I think when you drew our attention to the fact that it's not all fraught with constitutional controversy all the time, that there's other aspects of judging. I think that's important because it, it gets us beyond the constitutional stuff, which is important, and draws our attention to the function of the judiciary in general. And I guess my question is, if, if the assumption is that venue matters, and I do think it does, you mentioned the etiquette and the norms, I think the venue of the judiciary matters. It matters in reconciling power disparities between different litigants it, in all sorts of ways that you mentioned. But does not the inverse also hold true with regard to, and this isn't necessarily an issue with regard to the courts, but with regard to the Senate, potentially in the House and the President, does venue not matter then for the act of legislating as well? And is a big part of our, and, you know, as we then pivot into how do we get good judges, is a big part of our problem right now that we're looking to the courts to do a whole lot of things that we otherwise ought to be doing in other places. And a courtroom's not a great place for equals and to come together and adjudicate their concerns and, and make collective decisions, right? I mean, that's not, it's not, it doesn't strike me as a good venue for that, but it is a good venue for reconciling disputes between parties, uh, whether that those parties be, you know, states and the federal government and the dispute is over the constitution or whether it be private parties over disputes arising under the law. But that's a good venue for that. But it's not a good, because you can't really see what's happening there. It's hard to get penetration, to understand, to hold people accountable, all other sorts of things. I mean, I, sorry, I'm rambling a little bit here, but what do you want to, what do you think about that? So what constitutes a lawsuit? What are the claims that you can bring to court? Before the 20th century, a whole lot of things we take for granted couldn't be brought. Family law is a 20th century artifact, because otherwise men ran the family. And women, I mean, divorce didn't exist in the early part of the 20th century in any wholesale fashion. Neither did environmental law or securities law. So when we think of things now that we think naturally, of course you can go to court for that, you couldn't go to court for that a long time before. Once you get a lot of people who have eligibility as rights holders, then you have to think about things like class actions and aggregate proceedings because you have to get some economies of scale. And so then the question is, what kinds of questions can court solve? They can be backward looking or forward looking. A recent lawsuit, the CARES Act, does the CARES Act apply? If the CARES Act has text that says individuals with a certain income. The Internal Revenue Service interpreted that to exclude people in detention. A federal district court judge just ruled, sorry, that's not what the words say. And there was no process for interpreting them any other way other than the fiat of the IRS. And so that's an example of a lawsuit about a federal statute in which Congress provided some relief for needy families and people, and here's a legal application. So that's an example where one would hope 
that a judge of any stripe would say these words have no modifiers and there and there's no legislative history suggesting any modifiers and there's no reason to think that these needy people who can't sometimes get sanitary products without a commissary shouldn't be able to get relief as well so those are the kinds of examples when you say is this a venue for courts is this a is this an argument or not it's hard to say there's something that can't go to court. The question is what courts do with it when they get it. And a lot of times judges say, actually, you know, either you win or you, what judges can't do is pass. They're not supposed to pass. <laughs> so I, the idea that, that there's judicial activism, that's their job. And then the question is, how are they going to do it decently? And you have to come back to Lee. And I mean, the other the big concerns are that they're actually not paying attention to the record of the facts and the law because they've got an agenda. And all they're doing is advancing their agenda. I want to pivot into like, how do we get these judges now? But I, I think it's a good pivot and follow up to your comments here. And I'm going to turn it to Julia too, but feel free to jump in. Is that it seems like there's a, it's more of a, maybe it's motivation. I don't know really how to articulate this very well, but it seems to me that does the, does the way you think we ought to select judges or what we ought to consider in our selection process for judges, does that change based on what you think judges should do? And that then gets to, well, do you think, do we go to the courts to set nationwide policy in lieu of going to Congress? Because it, for various reasons, or are we going to courts to reconcile private controversies, disputes that may have the effect of incidentally setting nationwide policy, right? I, I agree with that. Uh, but they ultimately, I think it's almost like a motivation or an, an intent on, on the part of the people who are going, because now we have law firms on the left and the right whose entire, it's like a litigation strategy. Someone called me recently and said, we, we want to really protect the, the electoral college and, and, and really undermine the national popular vote compact. I'm like, well, great. What, what's the argument? How are we going to persuade people? I'm a fan of the electoral college. And there's like, no, it's a litigation strategy. I'm like, well, okay. Like, but that's like, that's taking, that's what I guess I'm trying to get at. And so when you think that the courts are venues to make nationwide policy that you then can impose on the nation and everyone, as opposed to say that Congress or the Congress and the executive, um, does then, does that change how you go about getting good, like selecting judges? It's not an either or, it's incredibly iterative. Every mm -hmm. time judges interpret a statute, you can run, as you know better than me, you can run back to Congress and get, and if you can persuade the Congress to override that because they rewrite the statute because they got the, the judges got it wrong. So to think it, these are interactive venues. Mm -hmm. If we go back to the great trajectory of Justice Ginsburg and lawyer Ginsburg, it was an interaction between legislative, social and political mobilization, state activity, and don't ever drop out the states in this story in terms of their vitality as feeders of our national imagination and as not just experimental labs, but as generating important policy. So to think of it as is either the court or the Congress or the executive, everybody's in a round robin here around these kinds of debates. So litigation is one venue, and sometimes it's not the best venue by any stretch of the imagination. If you can get it fixed without it, more power to you but then sometimes it is a necessary venue. So that's one kind of piece of the story. Senator Schumer held the hearing in 2001 in which I testified about how we select judges. And there's a Yiddish word, mensch, looking for a good person who is trying to be, who cares about human beings, who is justice seeking. I was struck in one of the hearings when asked, when a nominee was asked, when did you give away work time, pro bono lawyer time? And he fumbled. So. Who is the, where is the generosity of spirit? How do we know that this person is humble and appreciates how much they don't know? What forms of rigid doctrin doctrinarism as compared to openness can you see in a record? And I wanna talk about district court judges and court of appeals judges who hold their life tenure jobs as well. And so don't for a second underestimate the importance of asking about the humanity of a person and their lived experiences. One of the achievements of the 20th century is that we think that it's a little weird if all the guys, if the judges are all white men, but one of the lacks right now on the US Supreme Court, save Justice Sotomayor, is that most of the justices have not had any experience in ordinary litigation. She was a, a state prosecutor and therefore has been in courts that some of those other justices may not ever have even visited. So the importance of of practical 
work experience across the swath of human need, those are easy criteria to be promoting that are uh, missing in action in the most of the inquiries and judicial selection processes. No, I think that's, I like that iterative process and the give and take. And I think a lot of the dysfunction may arise because we increasingly, as Lee said, see the court as like the ultimate arbiter in Madison's phrase. And we don't, there's no concept of like a follow-on or an interactive type process. But Julia, what, uh, what do you think? Uh, you want to take us into judicial selection here and how we can get better ju- judges? Yeah, I, I do. And I, I really appreciate the conversation about the thinking, conceptualizing this as a problem across branches. I actually get a lot of questions from people who read my work on the presidency and on parties. Um, people listen to this podcast, I kind of random emails about how did the process become what it is, which I think I think usually the critique there is it's very partisan in its in its politics and very ideological. And that's a very common characterization. Um, How did the process become what it is? And, you know, who is behind that? Does it have to do with the changing politics of the court? Does it have to do with the changing politics between the president and the, the parties and the legislative branch? And the other question I have really kind of builds right off of what you just said, Judith, um, which is about experience. So I've spoken with colleagues who are proponents of the idea that it's good for members of the judicial branch and particularly the high court, which I guess is what I spend most of my time thinking about when I think about this, is for them to have experience in elected politics. And I wonder, I want to actually bring this back to our discussion about power. Does it help for judges to have kind of experience working in either in like state or local level politics where they understand the implementation of their decisions um, or other kinds of venues where they would gain a different understanding of how how the use of state power that comes down through these decisions, as, as James said, what we all have to live with, how that affects different people's lives. I realize that's kind of a multi-part question. So first in terms of partisanship, you all know that the Jay Treaty was a big debate that defeated Rutledge from his chief justiceship at the get-go of the country. So the Federalist judges, the Midnight judges, Marbury v. Madison. So the idea, so one is, it's been partisan. Never underestimate the role of technology, volume, economies of scale, right? What makes it hyper now? The Twitters and the ability to marshal counter forces at volume levels that are deafening is one piece of the driven, riven part of it, which we see that the challenges of the new medias have um, as sources of discourse or sources of discord. Uh, those are parts of, that's one of the factors here. Another factor is and that's why I think you have to think about it at the comprehensively at the entire quote judicial branch, which is the lower courts as well. The nomination strategy that was basically framed by Nixon's uh, staff and then moved forward was the idea that if you want to change the outcome, coming back to Lee, you got to change the judges, you got to change them at the lower tiers as well as at the Supreme Court, and then you got to do bench climbing where you're going to put someone at a court of appeals because you're trying to pop him or her into the uh, Supreme Court. And so the idea of looking across the set, of going to partisan groups to find people age 41, happy birthday 40, find new young folks who you believe have commitments and don't have what you were just speaking about in terms of life wisdom or a lot of experience, including in negotiation and practical impact. And you go find them and you populate as many as possible. And you don't look for their qualities of even-handedness. You, in fact, look for intemperate in some instances. And so we can see in the recent lower court nominations, excruciating examples of people who you wouldn't want deciding your local community zoning decision in a uh, sitting on a board, not just sitting in a court. So if you start thinking that way, you can then corrupt the branch not through bribes, but corrupted by corrupting the concept of decent, wise, even-handed judging. And that's what some of what we've been seeing in recent time. When you talk about, there was a Lee, um, Ellen Peters is the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court of 
Connecticut and talked about how importantly she understood living in Connecticut that when their court was making a judgment, it had to function in the lives of people of her state. And what you've underscored is the idea that the Supreme Court is so at distance and the one comparative example to give is, um, so the Israel Supreme Court sits uh, in a larger benches and smaller benches, but also does emergency applications against the government. And therefore, Aharon Barak, president of the Supreme Court a decade ago or so, would, could be facing, will you let X protest the marches that are currently or protests going on? That could be a decision of a subgroup or group of the justices on the Supreme Court, which puts them on the front lines and gives them a different insight. And so one of the answers on the structural institutional side is one of the mistakes, certiorari docket, let the Supreme Court is picking its own cases. We can look at a lot of ways in which the Supreme Court as currently constituting itself has problems that put it even further at distance from the functioning of their opinions in the world as applied to people. Lee? Yeah. So I'd like to pick up on this comparative question because uh, it always seems like the conversations that we have about American politics ignore that America is one of many democracies in the world. And there are all kinds of different approaches to judicial selection. Uh, I think the U.S. is the only democracy that has life tenure for judges, if, if I'm correct. Um, we have a very strong version of judicial review comparatively. And you know, we're also really the only advanced democracy with just two parties in a purely binary party system. So my broader question is sort of to if you can elaborate a little bit on the on the range of ways in which different democracies structure the role of their judiciary and its interactions with partisan politics. And if you think that there's a democracy that really has an approach to to the judiciary that that is is productive and could be a model. Many questions there. So very quickly, uh, some facts on the ground. Canada and the UK mandatory age retirement. Also Israel, I believe, and other many other countries. A little Commonwealth influence there. Statutory terms: nine years. France Conseil Constitutionnel, which is a kind of constitutional court. Uh, Germany, term limit, I believe it's nine years as well. So there are a lot of different ways, but none of the examples I give you give everybody life tickets for their lived lives, even though they have strong, strong views on judicial independence and the protection for it. In terms of constituting benches, split decisions among different branches of government, in some instances, special committees. Uh, Canada has a statute that says three from Ontario and three from Quebec obviously part of the compromise in a, a country that has had divides around the around issues with those are the dominant population. Um, as I mentioned, as you may obviously have read from the reports of the arguments in the U.S. Supreme Court, at the moment, uh, Delaware has a provision, appointments to the, I have the quote because I couldn't possibly remember it, appointments to the office of the state judiciary shall be at all times subject to the following limitations. Three of the five justices of the Supreme Court in office at the same time shall be of one major political party and two shall be of the other. So the idea of trying to create, quote, a nonpartisan court by having the two major parties there, there are a host of examples of ways to constitute courts that are different from ours. None of them are perfect, but all of them coming back to actually James's opening, it could be that it works for a while and then you need to fix it, and then it can work for a while again, and then you need to fix it on this iterative idea that it isn't necessarily that we fixed it this way and now this is the good way to do it. It's problem solving at the time and place. What democracies can't do is give inheritance for judgeships, and they can't bar by discriminatory categories. And it looks like what they now understand as part of their legitimacy is they need to compose their just judgeships with people who come who don't all look the same. The concern is the essentialist concern that just because X is a woman doesn't mean that X is concerned about the lived experiences of women across the spectrum. So you have to be functioning not in an essentialist way. But you can see the example from Delaware, which is being fought in the U.S. Supreme Court on First Amendment grounds, and say um, people are trying to figure out ways to get ahead of, extract from, not get mired in bad forms of politics. There's so much to talk about here. We're running short on time. And so what I'd like to do is move into the kind of the final round here where we discuss uh, briefly kind of our put on our speculation hats and say, 
if there are reforms, you know, what reforms would you either like to see or think we may see? And then what the consequences of those reforms might be? Or alternatively, what are you looking at in this current debate and how it impacts and informs your understanding of judicial selection? And so let's start with Julia and then we'll go around and Judith, you can have the, the last word there. My understanding of this is probably pretty informed by my background studying both rhetoric and communication and, and as a presidency person. But I really what I would like to see in in more immediate terms is to kind of give up the notion of of depoliticizing the branch and be more honest and straightforward about about the stakes and about the legitimacy of pursuing legal ends through politics and through process. You know, I'd really like to see an end to the discourse of, well, of like was Lee, as Lee was saying, the sort of calling balls and strikes and have people really accept the implications and the power of, um, of what's going on. And the fact that you know, politics, as we've as we've said, is is ubiquitous. So my my wish is a little bit fuzzy. I'm deliberately staying out of some of the contemporary questions about what Congress might do with with the Supreme Court in the next term. But I do think that it's part of that discussion, this question about the court not as kind of standing separate from the rest of the political system, but very much being integrated and enmeshed within it, being a check on the other branches, but also potentially checked by them and. I think this also has implications downstream for thinking about the the political ramifications of other courts. So that's sort of that's my that's my court wish list is to is to straightforwardly acknowledge the politics. A couple of things in this conversation that I really like. One is this idea of of the of the iterative nature of thinking about our judiciary, and you know, I think at a certain time and place, you know, the idea of nine judges with a 60 vote threshold in the Senate, I think made sense because the political parties didn't really have clear ideologies. Judges didn't have clear ideologies. And so you could kind of reasonably uh, do a process where you're looking for people with just good judging qualifications. It had its limits, but it, it kind of made sense. But we're, we're in a very different place now. Uh, and so we ought to have a judicial selection process that recognizes that we have this very uh, binary hyperpartisanship. Um, you know, so I, I actually like that idea of like, you know, if we're going to expand the court, expand it to like 27 or 51 or, you know, 138 judges who just kind of you know, constitute different, uh, you know, different, different, uh, maybe nine judge, nine judge panels, five ju- judge panels. And it, you know, it creates what it, it means that, that any individual, uh, appointment is not going to be this high stakes. Also get rid of lifetime tenure, although uh, that might be more difficult. Uh, you know, and then, you know, if the idea is that a- as a litigant, you don't know what court you're going to get, you know, you, you'll be a little bit, uh, I think I think your strategies would be a little different if you're bringing activist litigation. And as a justice, right, if if you think that that some differently constituted uh, group of judges might come to a different conclusion, I mean, you, you want to come to a conclusion that is going to withstand what whatever cons, you know group of of liberals or conservatives uh, you know, might judge it in the future. So I, I, I like those ideas. I think that's a really useful way of thinking about the, the, the court as just something that has to evolve to match the, the broader politics across all, all three branches. So thank you for that. And thank you for joining us. I'm about to turn to you, Judith, for the last word, but I've, I've really enjoyed this conversation. I think our listeners will enjoy it as well. And even in our conversations on the task force on the judicial nomination and confirmation process, you've really helped me to think more clearly and articulately about what it is that the judiciary does and then how that relates to the broader system. And I think that's something that's really important that we drive by. And it's important because once we have the function firmly in view, we need to we can then think creatively about how to go about fulfilling, you know, populating the bench so that it can fulfill its function and do its job. And I think a big part of the problem, and yes, that's not going to be the same at all times and in all places, and it can change over time. And and that's the conversation that we can and should and ought to have. And a big part of the current problem, it seems to me, is that we, 
it's 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 not the courts. It's it's the it's the Senate. It's senators. It's the president. It's the the larger people, the population, the populace, if you will. Um, and I think expecting the courts, looking at the courts from a different perspective, and I think not having this healthy interbranch understanding of this iterative dynamic process that plays out, and that politics is an activity that we all participate in from different perspectives and different vantage points, and that the real tragedy of that, I think, in this current moment, and I think this is something both conservatives and liberals, Democrats and Republicans, and everybody in between can agree on, the tragedy is that the courts ultimately, I think, are going to suffer. Their legitimacy will will suffer if we keep going down this road. And we absolutely need courts for all of the reasons that you've that you've laid out and that we've discussed here as well. I mean, they're 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 incredibly important and they're a co-equal branch of the government, so or a coordinate branch of the government. But with that, I want to turn it over to you for our last words and and thank you. We dovetailed because I was going to use the word restoration. But the problem right now is we have to restore. A restoration project for the Supreme Court and the lower courts, the tarnishing by having people who are not qualified to sit under a political criteria of quality lawyering and decent range of activity and knowledge bases, as well as having in some of their past said vicious things about subgroups of Americans and of people in general. So the restoration project is going to have to is either you have to reinterpret life tenure, and the sad part is is the Senate's making the court look like it, and that's really terrible. So the restoration project is going to have to look at how either life tenure doesn't mean for one's lived life, or one can pass statutes to change the circulation. So you sit on the Supreme Court for a certain period of time, and then you sit on lower courts so you can move around and obviously expand and change numbers so that you no longer have a fixed partisan understanding of the participants. And hopefully, one would hope that over time, some of those participants come to understand their job differently or decide that this isn't a job they want because it's really labor intensive and if done decently tears at people's souls thank you for joining us in, on this episode of politics in question thank you for listening to politics in question the show is a joint production of new america and the r street institute and our producers are elena soros shannon lynch and Jason Stewart. Theme music was composed by yours truly. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.